Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. That was Theresa May speaking in June 2016, days before she became British Prime Minister. Is this the week when we finally get to find out what Brexit means, apart from, well, Brexit? I'll be putting that question in a moment to our London editor, Dennis Staunton. And I'll be talking to Sally Hayden, who has spent recent days in Uganda reporting on how the practice of female genital mutilation continues among some communities, in spite of its having been outlawed there eight years ago. Today, Tuesday, is International Day of Zero Tolerance for FGM. But it's British politics first, and Dennis Staunton joins me now from London. Dennis, I'll come straight to that question I, I posed there a moment ago. Is this the week when we will learn what kind of relationship Britain wants to have with the EU after it leaves in March next year? Probably not. There are two meetings of uh, Theresa May's Brexit War Cabinet, as it's called. It's a, a subcommittee of the Cabinet. And they're meeting on Wednesday and Thursday for just two hours on each day. And they're going to go through a whole series of issues surrounding the future relationship between Britain and the European Union. And the idea is that they should work out what Britain wants. And one of the issues is uh, that you know that's got a lot of attention in the last few days is the whole question of the customs union and whether Britain wants to remain inside or outside the customs union. The customs union of the European Union is uh, it's an agreement between all of these states that they will have the same tariffs, uh, that they will have no tariffs between their countries and no customs controls between their countries, and also that they have this thing, the external, uh, the common external tariff, which means not only do uh, they charge the same tariffs on everything from other countries outside the European Union, but they they can't negotiate separate trade deals. What happens is that. The European Union uh, negotiates on behalf of all 27 countries. So the question is, what happens when Britain leaves? Does Britain leave the customs union uh, along with the single market, which is what Theresa May said that they would do uh, in her Lancaster House speech a year ago? The single market is, uh, as it as suggests, a, a single market for goods and for for uh, financial services and all kinds of other things. And basically what this is really is a common set of rules so that if you make something in Ireland, it is recognised in Germany as being uh, the equivalent of a German product or indeed the same way a German service. So uh, she said that she wants to leave both the customs union and the single market. Uh, But there have been some suggestions over the past few days that maybe there might be some fudging on this. And the idea that there might be some fudging on leaving the the customs union has caused an awful lot of rancour among uh, Brexiteers on the Conservative backbenches. And what might that fudge involve? I mean, David Davis, the Brexit secretary, he's talked about, you know, Britain will leave the customs union, but might have a new customs arrangement with the EU after it leaves. So what, what does he have in mind there, do we know? Well, the, the British government produced a paper last summer where it, it had two ideas. One was what they called a customs arrangement and another was what they called a customs partnership. And really what the customs arrangement would be would really be that actually Britain would leave the customs union and it would set its own trade deals, perhaps even different tariffs, all the rest of it, but that they would just find some way through maybe technology to kind of try to ease the passage of goods between, uh, say, Dover and Calais, between uh, Britain and other European countries. And 
And the idea would be, for example, that if you were a truck and you were taking goods from Britain into France, that you could do all your paperwork online in advance and you'd have some kind of a system rather like you have on the motorways uh, you know, for tolls that uh, it would somehow, you'd, you'd just be recognized or you'd be a trusted trader. So the idea is that you actually, you would be completely separate, but you just find ways of making the thing easier in terms of the impact on people and on goods. And then the uh, customers partnership would uh, involve a, a closer relationship because what, would that, what that would mean would be that although Britain would have left and would still be able to negotiate its trade deals around the world, that uh, they would decide to align their rules with EU rules. So that, for example, they might say, well, actually, we are free to set our own tariffs on different goods, but we're going to agree to set the same ones as you do in the European Union. And, uh, and so that through doing things like that, that you would really mimic being in the customs union and that that would mean that uh, most of the problems in terms of movement of goods and everything else that you might get by leaving the customs union, those would be eliminated. Now, the problem that the uh, Brexiteers have with this is that they say, well, actually, uh, if we're somehow bound into the customs union, say, for things like goods, and we want to go and start a new trade deal with China, what we want to do is to be able to sell all our services to China, mostly, because that's mostly what Britain uh, exports. Uh, but what China will say is, well, actually, if you want to uh, us to buy your, your services, then we'd like a good deal on our goods, and uh, we'd like a better deal than we're getting from the EU right now. And so what the, uh, the Brexiteers say is that actually, by remaining too closely connected with the EU, that you're really, uh, you're preventing yourself, you're preventing Britain from taking all these opportunities opportunities outside. But of course, the problem, isn't it, for the, the, the pro-Brexit um, argument, if you like, is that they, they, they want to have the freedom to negotiate trade deals individually with other countries, but they don't want to have to live with the trade barriers that would ne inevitably follow between Britain and the EU. Isn't that, isn't that the problem? They kind of essentially want to have their cake and eat it. They do. Well, they're hoping actually that they will have some, they'll have a good free trade agreement with the European Union and that this would kind of cover most of what they've got and make everything kind of easy. But they, but they do want to negotiate these trade deals. But in a way, it goes to something deeper. It goes almost to something psychological about your approach to Brexit. What the, uh, the Brexit here is complaining about is that they see people like the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Philip Hammond, and to some extent, Theresa May. They think that they see Brexit as a problem that has to be managed. And they particularly think that the civil servants uh, are, can only see the downside to Brexit. And so that really the strategy is all about trying to limit the damage of, uh, you know, the Brexit is likely to do to British business. And what the Brexiteers say is, actually, you're getting it completely wrong. Brexit is a great thing. And we really have to take a different approach to things and just think in terms of the opportunities. And if we don't think in terms of the opportunities, then we really will have the worst of both worlds. And to think in terms of the opportunities, what you've really got to do is to, you know, you actually have to set yourself free from the European Union. You actually have to deregulate. You have to diverge. And that actually, if you try to remain too closely aligned with the European Union, all those opportunities, whatever they might be, will evaporate. And that's where the, 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 the real fundamental battle is going on within the government. Now, Michel Barnier, the EU chief negotiator on Brexit, he was in London this week and he met David Davis on, on Monday, briefly met, met Theresa May. What message did he bring from Brussels? Well, uh, David Davis said it's very clear what we want. And then immediately afterwards, Michel Barnier said, well, we're looking forward to hearing what you want in the next few weeks. But if you leave the customs union and the single market, there will be trade barriers. There's no way of avoiding that because that's just the nature of the thing. So, uh, so that was one uh, message he brought. And then the other is just what the negotiations are going to involve over the next few weeks. And really, there are three elements to it. The first is that 
this uh, this agreement that Britain and the EU made before Christmas, which was called a joint report, which included, for example, a guarantee on how they would avoid a hard border in Ireland, no matter what happened. They're putting that into a legal text, and that's going to take a few weeks to agree a legal text. And so one of the difficulties there is going to be, what exactly did the promise about Ireland mean? Because what they said was that if they fail to resolve the border issue in any other way, that uh, the that Northern Ireland and uh, the Irish Republic would remain aligned in the areas of the single market and the customs union that are uh, that affect North-South cooperation, the Good Friday Agreement, and the all-island economy. Now, what the Irish think is that means kind of everything, more or less, because almost everything involves the Northern Ireland or the, the all-island economy. What uh, the British view is, uh, is that, no, it actually just means a few areas that are identified in the Good Friday Agreement. And also, when we say fully aligned, we really mean that we're going to agree that we want to get to the same place, but we might come to that place in a different way. So we might have different regulations. Uh, in north and south, but they all kind of amount to the same thing because essentially we'll, uh, you know, uh, we're aiming in the same direction. So that's an argument that's going to be going on over the next couple of weeks. Then the next part of the negotiations is about the terms of the transition arrangement. And so what both sides have agreed is that for a period of almost two years after Britain leaves in March 2019, that uh, everything will remain the same, more or less. So Britain will effectively remain in the single market, in the customs union, you still have free movement of people. Everything will really be exactly the same as it is now, except that Britain will have left the European Union and it won't have a say in any new rules that are happening. Now, the question uh, that they have to work out now is there are all kinds of details, for example, about the rights of EU citizens. And then the other thing is that uh, the, what the British say is, look, we accept that we'll have to continue following the rules. But if you make new rules that are going to affect us, we don't expect to have a vote, but we'd like to have some kind of a seat at some sort of table and to have a right to object to that. And the Europeans are saying, get lost. And then the third uh, part of the negotiations is to work out what they're going to talk about in terms of the future relationship. And that's mainly about things like a free trade agreement and uh, the, you know, the customs arrangements. But it's also then about the fact that the European Union wants to make sure that there are some safeguards put in so that Britain can't go off and make itself a low-tax, low-regulation competitor on the edge of Europe. And that's, again, going to uh, be incendiary where the hard Brexiteers are concerned. And Dennis, just where I came in there about, I was asking, is this the week we might find out, get some more clarity from Britain about what it wants and its future relationship with the EU? And you said, no, it's not It's not going to be this week. But there are, as you mentioned, two meetings of the uh, Cabinet Brexit subcommittee this week. So what do we expect to learn from those meetings later this week? You usually don't learn all that much because what happens is that uh, they meet, they don't brief about them afterwards, but uh, various things kind of trickle out. But I think that, uh, you know, uh, if you look at the previous form, uh, both of Mrs. Of Theresa May and really just the way the cabinet works, I think that uh, some holding position is the most likely, that they're not going to decide, OK, we are going to stay in the customs union for a bit longer or we're going to definitely completely leave and there'll be no kind of customs arrangement. What they probably do, I would say, is that they will say, well, we have we stick by our proposals for a customs. We are leaving the customs union, but we stick by our proposals that we would like a customs arrangement or a customs partnership. So that, in other words, they'll hold on to the current position, which is regarded by the European Union as impossible. So that the, uh, the decision on the difficult issue will be postponed further. And the reason for this is that is the internal politics of the Conservative Party, because the party is split. And... Uh, 
you know, in a split between, uh, you know, particularly on the two uh, extremities of the party, you have this group of a few dozen very hard Brexiteers led by Jacob Rees-Mogg, and uh, they are absolute Brexit ultras. And then you've got a smaller group of uh, former Remainers who are resisting, uh, you know, leaving the single market, resisting leaving the customs union, and with, with uh, a government without a majority. Uh, Theresa May has to, to pay some heed to both sides. And Dennis, one of those um, pro-Remain MPs, Anna Subri, gave a fairly extraordinary interview on BBC Newsnight last night. Let's just hear a, a clip here of what you had to say. Labour's front bench itself is ideological. My front bench probably isn't, but it's in hock to 35 hard ideological Brexiteers who are not Tories. They're not the Tory party that I joined 40 years ago. And it's about time Theresa stood up to them and slung them out because they've taken down Major, they took down Cameron, two great leaders, neither of whom stood up to them. Well, if it comes to it, I'm not going to stay in a party which is being taken over by the likes of Jacob Rees-Mogg and Boris Johnson. They're not proper Conservatives. And if that means leaving the party, form some new alliance, God knows, I don't know, but we just simply cannot go on like this any longer. Something is going to have to give, because if it doesn't, not only will we get Jacob Rees-Mogg as our Prime Minister, we'll get a devastating hard Brexit, which will cause huge damage to our economy for generations to come, and I'm not prepared to sit by any longer and put up with this nonsense. De- Dennis, Anna Subri has always been pretty outspoken, but th- that was still, as I said, a fairly extraordinary um, interview. Now, the Conservative Party has been divided over Europe for a very long time, and she alluded to that there. She alluded to previous leaders, John Major and David Cameron, and the troubles they had. But how serious do you think the divisions are in the party right now, set sort of in that historical context? I think they're very serious, and I think that uh, this was a, a warning that, uh, to, uh, that uh, uh, Anna Subri was giving to Theresa May, but also to the party more generally. So, uh, because until now, uh, the Brexiteers have been flexing their muscles. And uh, and Jacob Rees-Mogg has recently become essentially the, the shop steward of the, the, the backbench Brexiteers in the Conservative Party. And he's a much more high-profile figure than any of his predecessors in that role. And so he's on the rampage and he's uh, demanding in a very, very high profile way, a very, very clear and strict adherence to the hard Brexit uh, mantra. And what Anna Subri is saying is that you, Theresa May, have to worry about us as well, because if you allow uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg and Boris Johnson to run Brexit policy, we will not only rebel as we have done uh, before Christmas when they caused a defeat in the House of Commons, but we could even walk. We could even leave the Conservative Party. And she's also warning the Conservative Party, if Theresa May is got rid of, as she might be at any moment or at any month or any week, whatever, uh, and you decide to install some Jacob Rees-Mogg, you split the party and we will go. And what Anna Subri knows is that besides the 11 or so backbench rebels, there are also a number of people within the Conservative Party who are in government, who hold ministerial positions, who are uh, who share her approach to Europe. And so there would be a larger number who could actually leave. So uh, so essentially what she is saying is you, uh, if you attack too far to the right with the likes of Jacob Rees-Mogg, you will split this party and you will put Jeremy Corbyn into office.
And to what degree is all of this undermining the leadership of, of Theresa May? I mean, how long more do you think she can survive? It's, it, it, what has become quite clear is that she is a person of remarkable resilience and that she can take uh, more humiliation, I think, uh, than most of us would be able to put up with. And uh, so it's either that she's very resilient or she's just very determined to cling to office. But uh, she's definitely survived more than she might have been expected to. People point to moments that could test her. One is the uh, the March European Council when the, um, the uh, when she'd have to agree to terms on the transition deal, and it could be that the Europeans get everything that they want, and uh, she has to make further concessions, and that that causes some kind of crisis in. Uh, uh, in the government uh, back in London. Another moment is the May local elections where uh, London and Birmingham and a few other places have local elections and the Conservatives are widely expected to do very, very badly. And uh, and there is also some fear that that might uh, kind of shake the nerves of Conservative MPs who look at the numbers of the people, uh, the, the councillors in their constituency and think if they're gone, I'm toast, and uh, unless we we make some some changes here, and then the third factor is just this daily sense of drift of everything going absolutely nowhere. That it's all miserable. That on the uh, domestic agenda, that Labour is uh, is setting the agenda. That it's a government that can't make decisions. That she uh, the, the that the prime minister is a prime minister who can't uh, enunciate a clear position on anything and particularly on Brexit, which is obviously the overarching issue for her government. And so there's just that sense of impatience. And so uh, the way it works in the Conservative Party is that 48 MPs, 15% of the uh, parliamentary party, so 48 MPs have to write a letter to the Backbench 1922 Committee saying we want uh, a vote of confidence. And if that happens, then a vote of confidence is triggered. Now, there are all kinds of rumours that the numbers are over 40 some say over 45. Nobody actually knows except Graham Brady, the chairman of the 1922 committee. At any moment, that could be 48. And then the question is, does she uh, contest the, uh, the confidence vote? If she wins it, does she win it by enough? And then what happens? Dennis, thank you. The United Nations has designated today, Tuesday, International Day of Zero Tolerance for Female Genital Mutilation. Officially, FGM includes all procedures that alter or damage the female genitalia for non-medical reasons. The UN calls it an extreme form of discrimination against women and girls and a violation of their human rights, including the right to be free of torture. Globally, it is estimated that at least 200 million girls and women alive today have undergone some form of FGM. Sally Hayden has just been to Uganda in East Africa to report on this issue and I'm very glad to say Sally is on the line now. Thanks for coming on, Sally. Um, no problem, Chris. Um, Sally, FGM has been illegal in Uganda since 2010, but, but you found the practice has certainly not been eradicated there. Where did you go in Uganda and what did you find? So I went to the northeast, um, mainly to Karamoja. And while FGM is only, I think only 1.4% of women in Uganda have gone through it, in parts of the northeast, it's as high as 95%. So where I was, it's it's still very common and we certainly got the feeling that it hasn't been eradicated at all. And in, in the villages you visited, what, what ages are the girls generally who are subjected to FGM? So no one will actually admit that anyone is being subjected to it, but definitely until about three or four years ago, it was girls of between nine and 11. Um, so 
very young. And, and what you found, Sally, I think was, wasn't it, that, you know, there are uh, women who are, who describe themselves as kind of, as the, the, they're called cutters, who who say they have given up the practice and it's now illegal. The penalties are, um, you, you could be imprisoned if you're caught doing it. There's also funding from NGOs and so on to encourage people to stop the practice. And that, that's probably why they're not admitting to it. But you certainly had an impression from talking to some of these women about the way they described it. They were describing it in the past tense, but you got the impression that it's certainly still continuing, at least in some rural communities. Is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, women would basically a lot of funding has come in and and women are being given as much as 200 million Ugandan shillings to give it up, which is about 450 or 500 euro. And so they're kind of quite keen to tell you that that it's not something that's happening. But then they start getting very excited telling us about it, you know, and, and kind of enthusiastically like reenacting what they used to do. And at the start, they'd say, you know, they didn't have any knives anymore. Um, it wasn't something that they had any thoughts of doing. And then later they'd kind of pull out the knives to show us. So, you know, the, the longer you stayed, the more you became aware that it wasn't something that had gone away at all. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I don't want to be anyway graphic here, but there's kind of no denying the reality of some of the things, you know, you, you found. You mentioned knives there, but so, some of the tools that are used are kind of shockingly unsophisticated. Isn't that, isn't that the case? Yeah. So they were using things like arrowheads like that they had refashioned or um kind of knives that had been bent mainly mainly arrowheads is what i saw and unsurprisingly then not not all girls even survived this procedure did you get any indication of even in the past what, what the kind of fatality rate is yeah so the place that i was uh they said that they used to do it on 50 girls a year and around three would die and uh, no one would admit that because it's illegal now. No one would admit that a relative had died or that they knew someone personally. But, you know, they'd all kind of say we've we've seen it happen. So and, and those then that are lucky enough to survive, what, what happens to them? They're young girls. Do they go back to school and resume normal lives generally? No. So basically, once they've gone through it, they're kind of deemed ready for marriage. So um, a, a man will essentially decide he's going to marry them offer their father normally like a lot of cows like up to 30 or 40 cows and then the girl will get married and maybe be like a third fourth or fifth wife and so they won't go back to school and um and they tend to get pregnant pretty quickly after that and then because it's women who carry out the procedure, I think we tend to maybe fall into the trap or the idea of thinking this is something women inflict on each other. But you make the point in an article you've written about this for the Irish Times that that um, it's at the end of the day in these communities, certainly where you visited, it's men really who are calling the shots. Yeah. And so you do like you. It, it's complicated because there are a lot of young girls who want to do it, you know, and they ask their parents, can they go through it? Because they think that it's a way that they can become an adult and and lots of young kids kind of want that but at the end of the day it's the fathers that give permission for them to do it and husbands tend to pressure them as well like future husbands so there's an idea that they won't be able to get married if they don't go through it and so yeah it did like at the start you'll think that it's women who are behind it and then when you look a bit more deeply, you realise that it is men. And of course, you, I think you met one man who said when he's away with his cattle, his, his wife, or he had many wives, but they're less likely to stray. And that, that was his terminology. 
if they have undergone FGM, isn't, and which probably gets to the heart of why this you know torture is inflicted on women in the first place. It, 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 it deny one of the things it does obviously is it, it denies women the the ability to have derived sexual pleasure, isn't that right? Yeah. So I mean, they'll say it's cultural practice and that it's tradition, but. But again, that that actually seems to be what's behind a lot of it and what's making it difficult for people to move beyond it. And Sally, as well as the, the horrific injuries caused in the short term for these girls who have undergone this this procedure, there are often long term health implications too, isn't that right? For example, when women when women become pregnant. Yeah, I mean, not to get too graphic again, but what we were hearing is that when they're trying to deliver a baby, the baby just can't get out and so they end up kind of because it's so hard to get to a hospital like you might be up to 40 kilometers away over like really mountainous terrain and there's only one ambulance for like 200,000 people um so the women can't get a cesarean so it ends up being the cutters who who did it in the first place who are then kind of trying to get the baby out by cutting them open again and so it's just this kind of horrific cycle of violence against women essentially um, and, and can be damaging towards the baby as well. Well Sally we know the UN has made it a goal to have female genital mutilation eliminated across the globe by 2030 and I think anybody who's been able to listen to your report just now it's a, it's a difficult it was a difficult subject to report on and and, and even you know to, to listen to so um, thanks for bringing us that. And, yeah, um, no, and sorry it's worth saying as well I, I randomly ran into someone who said that Irish Aid is supporting a project in the area to end FGM that started in October. So I didn't even go out looking for that, but I found out that Ireland is playing a role in that exact region to try and stop it. That's good to know. Sally, thanks again for joining us today. Cheers. Thanks for having me. And you can read Sally's report on the practice of FGM in Uganda on irishtimes.com. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.